Good morning. Are we on there? Is it coming out? I can't really tell. So, well, thanks, Blake, and thanks to the elders here at EF that uh, you guys have been very generous to bring Tricia and myself out here to spend the weekend or maybe a better part of the weekend on both sides with you guys here at EF. And uh, just don't worry, I've been warned multiple times at this point to say nothing disparaging about the state of Texas. So you can rest assured, <clears throat> I'll probably pay attention to that warning uh, this morning. I don't know where they're getting that from and why I'd ever say anything disparaging about the state of Texas. But uh, anyway, but thanks you guys for, for having us out here. And uh, we're delighted to be with you in fellowship, but also to bring uh, the word. And we have that in common. Uh, you, you are here gathered this morning because you love Christ and you're redeemed by him and you want to hear uh, his word speak to you and your hearts this morning. And, and that's what we'll have in common as we, we look into the word of God this morning. Um, perhaps we can go ahead and stand and just read the passage together. It's Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. It says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every, from, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, we're going to jump right into our passage this morning, and I want you to look at that uh, opening phrase that we just read. It says, for this reason... And quickly bounce back to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see the exact phrase, for this reason. And I love the Apostle Paul <clears throat> uh, for, for many reasons, but this is one of them. He says, for this reason in 3.1, and then he, some people would call it a digression. That digression is in quotes, because how can you ever say that anything in the Word of God is a digression? But it's that Paul gets carried away describing another little aspect of the mystery of the gospel, which is that he has been entrusted with this mystery that uh, God has entrusted him to really unpack the unsearchable riches of what's going on in the church. That wasn't foreseen in the Old Testament, but God, as, as gracious as he was to Paul, delivered to him, uh, most likely in his personal instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ, the mystery of the gospel, that being the church. He gets, he get, he gets into that for just a little bit and then comes back to his prayer 
in verse 14 where he says, for this reason. So we have to ask ourselves, what's the for, re for this reason for? It's probably not exactly just what's right before this reason in verse, verses 3 through 13. It's more likely pointing back to actually, thank you, Ken, what Ken read this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. And some of you are very familiar with Ephesians chapter 2. Probably some of the most famous, I would even argue some of the most famous verses in all of the New Testament are found in 8 and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, even the faith, is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then the passage that Ken read, that's, that's the amazing uh, reason why Paul bows his knees, is saying, look, you have to understand Gentiles, and I believe that he's, he's writing primarily to a, gen, a Gentile church, although, of course, Jewish roots. But I think primarily he's, he's, he's writing to a Gentile congregation here in Ephesus, and he's saying, you have to understand that you are on the outs you, for generations, for millennia. You, you were not in God's program. And now, because of Christ, he's broken down that wall, the biggest wall that there ever was eth ethnically between Jew and Gentile. Christ has broken that down. And now, Gentiles, you're in the family because of God's grace. And, you, you know, we didn't read this this morning, but really quick, we're, we're probably familiar with 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, but because God is merciful, He's brought us in. And that's why Paul says, hang on a second, before I go, this is probably why it's one of my favorite prayers in all of Paul's writings, is not so much the, it is eloquent, it is, um, uh, the, the form of it is beautiful, you could say, but I think I love the, the position of this verse, these verses, or this prayer, because of where it's seated in the Word of God. And it's as if Paulus has gone through all of this instruction on who you are. And, and you're probably familiar also with Ephesians chapter 1 on really talking about how even before all time began, we are, we are chosen by God to be put into his church and into his program. Then he impacts it more in chapter 2. And then he pauses before he's going to instruct the church on everything that they really must aspire to because of who they already are in Christ, he hits the pause button. And that's when he bows his knees. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He wants to stop for a second. And even though there's been an opening prayer, which is common to Paul's writings, uh, you, can, you can see those uh, wonderful prayers even in 2 Corinthians, I think there's, there's somewhat of a prayer there. But of course, in Colossians and Philippians, uh, there's always this thanksgiving of what God has already done in his people, and that's why he's praying. But in Ephesians, you get this extra little clause before he goes from what we call the indicative to the imperative, or what is known, or what is fact, or what is true about you and your identity in Christ. Pardon, I'm going to get that water that... Blake sneaked up here. Thank you. <clears throat> Sorry, you have to listen to my guzzle in the microphone. Um, before we get into the imperative or what we must do because of what Christ has done for us, Paul prays. And I think that's significant. It's not just um, for where it's seated in this text or this passage, but also as an example. 
And I, I hope that's a walk away for us all this morning is to recognize that anything to be done for Christ has to be done in his power and by his grace. So we're going to uh, unpack this prayer, really verses 16 through 19. And then, of course, look at the doxology that's wonderful that, that ends it as well. So uh, this is why he prays. It's for this reason. He says he bows his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. An interesting phrase. Really talking about most likely everybody who's gone before us. The family of Christ is not just who's alive. The family of Christ is everybody that Christ has included. And maybe even it could expand to when he's talking about every family. He could be talking about angels as well that glorify him. Anybody in the heavenly family. And that includes us here in the heavenly family that are really here temporarily. That's who Paul is saying. That's who I'm praying to. And it says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, and he goes on to the request. Real quick note on the, the, the phrase, according to his riches. That's, a, that's a, a, a phrase that Paul loves using, not only in his writings, but especially here in Ephesians. He wants, there's some reason, and I, I, I must confess, I didn't have all the time to unpack of why he, he lists it so much in Ephesians, but there's something he's going for where he wants the Ephesians to understand how much they've been blessed. And it, it, to, to me, I, I, I have to ask myself, well, why does he want this congregation? Because this isn't Thessalonica. This isn't Colossae. This isn't the Philippian church. This is Ephesian. This is the Ephesian church. And he, he wants them to understand so profoundly that the riches of God are by his grace. They're nothing that, that, that we can do. And he repeats that theme. 2, 8, and 9 is not just a famous verse. It's, you see that thread all throughout the book of Ephesians, and especially that God, out of his rich mercy, or his, according to the riches of his glory, and then he launches into his request. So, I've got a little bit of an outline here. Pardon me for the, the seminary nerdiness of the, the alliteration. <laughs> so, if alliteration frustrates you, just throw it away. Just remember the, 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 the actual phrases of God's word, but if alliteration helps, then great. But I think what we find here, first of all, in, in verse 16, where he says that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, I, I really think he's praying that we would be spiritually capable, that God would give us the spiritual capability to, there it is, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's an amazing phrase. And I really think he breaks it down into, I'd say, two major requests with two major results, but really you could see him as four prayer requests, that you, you can split this prayer into, into four major categories, and, but really they all build off one, one, they all build off each other. But notice, notice that, that he says to be strengthened with his power, strengthened with power through his spirit. And you think about that term, through the Spirit. If you remember Romans chapter 8, verse 13, he says the only way to put off the deeds of the flesh is, he says, if by the Spirit. And you're talking about walking in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. But then Paul pauses and says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh. You may remember uh, Galatians, I believe, let me look at it here, Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. He calls the Galatians foolish for saying... 
Did you think, how, how, how beginning by the Spirit did you think that the perfection is going to come through the flesh? So the Galatians very quickly got off course, knowing that they were grounded in the Spirit, but then very quickly deviating towards thinking that the flesh could bring perfection. So he's asking that, that God would give the power through the Spirit, but also notice, so that's the source of which it's coming from, but also notice the location that he's praying for. And this, I think, is really important. That the location he's praying for, where the strengthening is to happen, is that it would be in the inner man, or the inner being. Interesting phrase. You don't see that very much in the New Testament. Uh, where the the inner man is referred to so specifically, especially here in the book of Ephesians, where the focus, a lot of it is on the body. It's on the the bigger picture of what Christ is doing. Again, Ken read read it in in chapter 2. It's these massive or global uh, realities that are happening in the gospel. So to get so specific, it's, it's very interesting for Paul to do that. But this is really just referring to our moral being. Uh, Jonathan Edwards probably coined that phrase, the seat of our consciousness. That's what he's talking about. It, it, that's the, the inner man is the heart. It's, it's where we do all of our thinking. It's the real us. It's, it's the us that, that, that only God can see. And I, I think you, you could uh, also cross-reference 2 Corinthians 4.16, talking about this is the, the part of us, praise God, that can be renewed day by day, even though our outward bodies are deteriorating. Praise the Lord for that. That there's something new inside of us. There's a rebirth in us that can actually grow, just as a child would grow from childhood to adulthood. There's our inner being. And God, in His miraculous power, can make that grow. You think about, you you might be someone who has a strong, a strong back, or a strong mind, uh, maybe a strong will, even some of us. Uh, there, there's a lot of, there's, you could have a strong body. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of strength. You could even have strong eyes. <laughs> My wife and I are just at the eye doctor and, you know, checking out, is, are, are our eyes still good? Or, or is our heart, a physician checks your heart, is your physical heart good? There's a lot of strength in a lot of different areas of life, but nobody can touch the arena that God has made in the inner man. No one gets to strengthen that. Man has no ability to really think about that for a second. You could go to the gym. You could take your your medicine to make sure uh, your 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 heart is is good, or your maybe it's uh, something like a sickness like diabetes or something that keeps your physical body in check, and that's a good thing. Um, perhaps you can, you know, uh, do any other exercises or vitamins that strengthen your outward man, but nobody can touch the inward man. That's God's arena. And that's why he asks for this powerful prayer. He says that Christ, I'm sorry, strengthen with power through his spirit in your inner being. Only God can do that. I think that should humble us for just, just a minute and say, God, we need you just as we needed you for the rebirth, and we've come, as we've grown in Christ, we've come to realize, wait a second, he chose us in him before the world began. Just as much as we needed him then to turn the lights, off, turn the lights on and regenerate us, 
we need God's power to continue that rebirthing work or that regenerating work that would continue until he comes. That's Paul's first request. According to his riches in his supernatural power, that he would continue to, God himself would continue to work on the inner man. That's the, that's the first thing he prays for. That is obviously a God-sized prayer request, isn't it? I think oftentimes our, <clears throat> it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with praying for less than that, but I think it's, it's amazing that uh, God here inspires Paul to pray for the deepest part of man, knowing that the outside will take care of itself if the inside is according to what God wants. So that's the first, the, the first point would be spiritual capability that, that Paul prays for. I think another observation uh, is, is that God, he would also um, dwell in our hearts. And that we could call spiritual continuity, if we're sticking with the SCs, okay? So spiritual continuity. He doesn't want Christ just to, in, uh, or the Spirit to strengthen us for an hour, or for a moment at rebirth, or a, a burst of sanctification, he uses the word, look down at it, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell there is important. Uh, it's that idea that, that Christ actually talks about in John 15, where he says, abide in me and I in you. That's the idea that Christ isn't just there, the Spirit's not just there in presence as He is in all of us when we are regenerated, but the idea is that the, dwell, the dwelling word focuses on the comfortability, this is interesting, the comfortability of Christ in our hearts. It's a strange concept. They, you, you, you think, wait a second, hold on a second. Of course Christ is comfortable in my heart. Like, he came there. Like, the, the, the Spirit regenerated me. It was his work, yes. But, notice the, the phrase, he's praying for a bigger faith, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And here's the same idea. All of these have pretty much the same idea, where there's a reality to it, but it's, it's, it's expanding progression, progressive sanctification, if you will. It's that it's not just this stagnant little, it's, it's one thing to be an acorn, it's another thing for that acorn to really serve its full purpose and turn into a full-grown oak tree and maybe bear its own acorns. There's, there's, we would all note that there's, there's the same DNA in an acorn that there is in a full-grown 80-year-old oak tree, but there's a, diff, there's, a, there's, a, there's a major difference at the same time. And this is what Paul is praying for, that this inner man strengthening would be such that Christ is very, a very comfortable, and I hate using the word guest, but he, he's, he's, he, he, his very person is comfortable in our being. Uh, you guys probably understand this when, when you're in somebody else's home. Uh, even when you're invited into someone's home, let's say any one of your homes, uh, you, there's a certain level of comfortability, even as a guest, even if you've had the invite there are certain things you probably wouldn't do. You don't go grab the remote, put your feet up on the, the coffee table, and say, hey, can you get me something from the fridge? Or um, maybe just go snooping around people's cupboards. Or, or <laughs> That'd be quite strange, wouldn't it, if, if you're a guest in somebody's house. 
Um, but as you think about it, if you're a family member in your own house, you do that. Now, I don't do that in my mother-in-law's house still. I mean, maybe, maybe sometimes. Um, but I'm usually not snooping around. You know, there's a certain level. Uh, there's, there's these unwritten rules of hospitality that you, you, you act in an accordance with the comfort level that you are in that home. And if you're a family member, uh, it works a little bit different. If you own the home, if it's your own home, there's full access. And that's the idea here, is that Christ wouldn't be this guest at the entry. And you take his jacket, and I know this is a little strange for us maybe, but then he kind of sits uncomfortably on our couch, and, and that's it. We're not going to show you the bedroom. We're definitely not going to show you the bathroom or the closets or any other intimate parts of my house that I just don't want you to see the mess of my life. That's the idea that Paul is saying. I'm praying that Christ would press further into your heart through faith. And I think we all know, sitting here, that that is still an act of faith for us to... Isn't that strange? Christ is the Lord of our hearts, but he is patient and works with us to knock and allow himself to be invited into, you could say, different rooms of our heart or different levels of comfortability. And that's what Paul is saying. I think there's in some some part of us somewhere, there can always be a little bit of like, "Uh, but I'm going to hold on to that 10%. Or maybe I'm not going to let you go into that room or through that doorway. But Paul is saying, I'm praying that you'd have the strength to actually let God in Christ through the power of his spirit be in all of you at all the time. That's what he's praying for is the quality of presence, not just that he would be present. I think Paul would already say that he is present because of the indwelling Holy Spirit at the moment of faith, but he's saying, let this continue. Um, And again, maybe I should correct myself there. He's not actually saying, let this continue. He's praying that it would continue. This is not an imperative. This is Paul asking that God would do this to them. And this this is significant as we move to the next point. I think this is really the heart of the prayer is... really in 17b and following, he says, he continues, that you being rooted and grounded in love, which is kind of a transitionary phrase from the first to the, the, the first part to the second part of the, the, the prayer, saying rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And we'll, we'll stop there. It's important that we understand that we're rooted and grounded. And I do think that we're moving into probably the most, uh, I I would say, uh, maybe the, I hate saying it, the most important part of the prayer, but maybe the most profound part of the prayer that Paul wants to get to and ask of these Ephesians. And would you look back at chapter 1, verse 5 really quick? I think it's important that we understand our heritage. And our heritage as Christians is love. Look at one verse. It's actually the very end of four, but most translations include it in verse five these days, where it says, in love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And that was at the beginning of, that was before the foundation of the world. Look over in two verse four. We've mentioned this already. 
verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. If we could skip ahead, go past our prayer, go over to chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Now there's the command to actually act like God by walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We could go on with the connections, especially outside of Ephesians, but that's just a couple in Ephesians. But we can very clearly see that our establishment, the beginning of what Christ did in us, was in love. And I, and I know there's many institutions, many businesses, many families like to have that EST, that established date, don't we? What is it with the established date or maybe the establishment of these principles or morals or these, uh, the, the way the business is founded or, or why it was founded? We like to talk about our heritage and our history, don't we? Uh, most often, it's, it's, it's a good thing. It's, it's because we're saying this was, there was a good cause for this establishment. Or this, this, you know what? This goes, this, this business goes back 200 years. That's how, and what, what are they saying by that? Established 1848. Or established some companies, you know, in England, 1790. And they've continued on to the day. What, what is the idea there? You're saying this thing has good roots. And it's still alive today. And there's been a continuation of this establishment. Or this marriage has gone back this far. That's the idea he's saying, being rooted and grounded. And I don't think, that, I, I actually prefer the translation rooted and established or rooted and founded. I don't think you have to use the two uh, agricultural terms. It's probably a better translation to say rooted and established or rooted and founded. That's the idea. He's just talked about us growing into a temple. Paul loves, he can mix those all the time in other, in other books. So I don't, I don't think it's unusual that he uses architectural and agricultural analogies. But he wants us to understand, look, Ephesians, you are rooted and you're grounded in this love. Now I'm going to pray for something greater than that. And that's this, that we would have strength of comprehension and knowledge to get our heads around the love of Christ, which is impossible. That's what he's going to pray. So I want you to understand, Ephesians, I want you to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses, surpasses knowledge. I think that's really interesting. I think it's worth our time getting into this just a little bit more so we understand, okay, why is it so important that I simply comprehend the love of God? Why, why, is Paul, why is Paul not praying, I pray that you would act like God? Like he's going to command them in 5, 1, and 2, like we just, we just read. Why doesn't he pray that they'd be able to do all the things that he's about to instruct them in, in chapters 4 through 6? But instead, he, you know, he's got, I don't know how much room on his parchment he had, but for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this but also for him to pray, for strength to comprehend, not to do all the things he was about to instruct. I think that's significant. 
Here's why, and I think you probably know why, right? Unless I comprehend God's love, I will not be able to and I will not want to do anything else that he would command of me, right? Comprehension, this is how significant it is. Comprehension of God's love for us is everything when it comes to holiness and the obedient life for God's glory. It's everything. And that's why Paul boils it down to, I'm just praying that you would comprehend it. Something that you cannot actually get your head around and comprehend. And he emphasizes with all the saints. Again, I think he's saying that it's not just an individual project. It's just not just a you thing, doing your, doing your own little Bible study. That's fine. As individuals, we have an inner being. He's already talked about that. He's about to talk about all the gifts that, the, that Christ has given to the church. Those are the individuals, yet the diversity is meant to build up into unity. All right? But he continually brings the Ephesians back with these little phrases like that, um, that you would be able to comprehend it with all the saints. To, so that together yet you might understand what, a, what, what God's love is for us. And I don't think it's possible without community, without the togetherness of the church body to really understand what it is to grasp the love of God. As, as a matter of fact, I would argue it's impossible to truly understand what God's purposes are and to comprehend his love outside of God's people. Because that's where we're going to understand it. And all you have to do is uh, really just dig in barely in a cursory manner in chapters 4 through 6 and you'll understand. I can't do this without some other believer, at least, at least one other believer in my life. And I would argue the entire church, of course. So, a uh, couple, of, couple of things I think we should, we should look at in this. I uh, just want to say that one more time, but that our ability to love is contingent upon our comprehension of God's love for us. Our ability to love is contingent upon our comprehension of God's love for us. You guys are probably familiar with, we won't turn there, but 1 John 4.19. Some, 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 some of us have that memorized perhaps. Why do we love? We love because He first what? You, I know you have a mask on, but I need a little bit more than that. We love because He, what? First loved us, yes. Why do we love? Oh, because we got loved first. Um, we don't have a clue what it means to, if you were to say love people just out of nowhere, we wouldn't have a clue what that means. We get to see what it looked like in Christ um, because He loved us, that's why we love. But a, a passage I, 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 we must turn to is 2 Corinthians 5.14. I understand you've been walking through the book of 2 Corinthians, and looks like you're almost there. Is that right? You're almost there to chapter 5. This verse very concisely explains this doctrine. 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this. I mean, that's just so, so clear. That one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. Why? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
And there's a lot in that verse, but it's, it's, it's really this simple doctrine, not simple as in oh, simple to do, but simple to understand that it's saying, look, the love of Christ comes first, and that's what controls us because why we've concluded <laughs> that Christ has died. And in Him dying, now it unlocks my the, the, the flesh in me. It unlocks the power that I have before been bound to, chained to. And now Christ, because of His love, unlocks that and says, I've loved you. And as we comprehend, as we really process that, that helps me live for Him and to not live for myself, but to live in service to others. One other passage I think would be helpful to turn to. We're not going to have a lot of time to really study much here, but go over to Matthew chapter 18. Or maybe just note this, even if you, you don't turn there. But Matthew 18, I think is an important story where Peter is asking a question of Christ, and he might be thinking he's doing well by asking this question, but the answer he gets gives us this great this great story. So Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, you, some of your headings will probably say, this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, let me read this quickly. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy t- seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison and he, until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that, all that debt because you pleaded with me? And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Powerful passage to understand what's going on here. I think we are helped by the passage we're already in this morning. Now, this is talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness, obviously, connected to love. I think it's very clear to say, why is that, why is that first servant who's owed, and we don't have time to do the, all the math, but the comparison is, is usually generally said to be millions versus a few thousand dollars. So what, what happened there? What was going on with that first servant who was forgiven more than the second what was, what was happening in his heart? We don't know everything, but we, we certainly know he was taking his forgiveness for granted. He was not processing 
the difference between millions and thousands or how much grace had been given to him. And so there's a very clear picture of our point this morning saying, if I don't, it's not that it wasn't done. It wasn't that the forgiveness did not take place. It was the comprehension or the appreciation or the praise or the thanksgiving for that forgiveness. That's why he couldn't turn around and forgive his fellow servant. Because it really hadn't affected his heart. The grace given to him did nothing. It's as if he was the same person before he was forgiven as he was after. And that's, that's a sobering thought this morning is, if, if I neglect, if I forget, if I'm distracted away from the love of Christ, we know enough of ourselves, don't we, that it shows up pretty quickly in our lives. We know, we know pretty quickly that it does. And that is, that's not just a scary thought. It actually can be a humbling and a sobering thought in a good way to say, God, this is why I need you to give me the grace, the strength, and the inner being to comprehend. It's not just something I can walk into every day and be like, oh, I just naturally comprehend God's love for me. I don't. I have a heart that, in a sense, tends to and even maybe sometimes wants to. That's the depravity of man. That the, the, the love that I've comprehended in times past of, of Christ's love for me can, in a sense, leak out of my heart, fall out of my heart, whatever you want to think about there. And it needs to be renewed continually to, to come back to saying afresh and to remember how good God has been to me so that I remember how to translate that to the body. That's what Paul is saying here. He understands, he's, the, he's a better theologian than all of us. He understands that nothing is going to happen in, in chapters 4 through 6 if God doesn't empower this body to understand God's love for them. So he can write all of 1 through 3. They can read 1 through 3 a thousand times. But it will do nothing for them if they don't comprehend 1 through 3. You know what I'm saying, right? Chapters 1 through 3. <laughs> Chapters 1 through 3, they have to comprehend what God has done for them. So I think it's significant that this is maybe the heart of the request. I, and, and you think about it, if we could just glance forward real quick, don't take time to, to go there, but I think we know some of the commands in chapter 4, uh, chapter 5, and chapter 6. Um, I think chapter 4 has, has the ones where it says, you know, to put off lying to one another, to put on truth, uh, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Chapter 5, you get into the husband and wife commands. Notice all the appeals. The appeals in chapter 5 are amazing. That he appeals to the, to the, man, to the husband. He's saying, why? Because your wife loves you? Absolutely not. Wife, because the husband loves you better than you? No. It's husbands, you need to love your wives. Why? What's the, what does he appeal to? The vertical. Because just as Christ loved the church. Wives, why should you respect your husbands? Because that's how, you, that's how the Lord would submit. Children, what do you do that for? Because that's in the Lord. Slaves, why do you do it? Everything he appeals to what has vertically happened already. The love that they've received because that, that is what our temptation is as humans. We're wanting to be loved first, 
rather than the one who's processed the love of God and can initiate that love in the body of Christ. If everybody's looking around, standing around, waiting for someone else human to love them first, it's not going to happen, is it? But if the opposite happens, if the love of God is being generated over and over into our hearts, that gives us the, you could say, even like the propulsion or the compulsion to move outside of ourselves to love one another and to obey those commands in chapters 4 through 6. All right, so that's, that's a huge part of the prayer. But look at, look at what else he prays. He says that, let me get back to my notes here. He says that they would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. I think that's simply saying all the dimensions of God's love. That's not every little aspect of God's love. He's just saying the expansive nature of it that we can't get our heads around. And to know, this is why, because I think 19 is synonymous, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I love that phrase in verse 19. To know, he's just repeating, comprehend, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Just because it surpasses knowledge doesn't mean we can't know anything about it, right? Like a similar appeal in 1 Peter, where he says, to be holy as I am holy. It doesn't mean, oh, God's holy and he's perfect. I, I give up because I can't be perfect. That's not what he's praying for. He's saying, we can taste of this. We can know the love of Christ that's unknowable. And that's what he's praying for is that he's praying that you would come to know more deeply what you can't know ultimately. So, spiritual comprehension is what he prays for. Lastly, he prays for spiritual completion or full maturity in Christ together. Full maturity in Christ together. And that's verse, the last part of 19, he says that, so it comes right out of his other prayer request, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, this is a tricky phrase, and I have a minute to unpack it. <laughs> this is a tricky phrase. And every glance, uh, you come back, and you're like, what is he really saying there? Really quickly on this. Verse, verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. 20. Um, he's talking about the household of God that were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for, for God by the Spirit. And here, I think here, here's the point. The New Testament temple, the New Testament temple is Christ's body, the church. He just said it. It's as plain as day in chapter 2. I don't have time to like really get into all the Old Testament. But you, you probably are aware of when Solomon's prayer of dedication, as soon as he prayed, it said, fire fell down, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, just like he had done the tabernacle. He fills the temple. But then sadly in Ezekiel, I can't remember the passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 10 maybe, where it says very reluctantly God backed out of the temple. His glory left the temple. Why? Because his people were committed to wholesale sin uh, up and down the country from the highest to the lowest person. Uh, God's glory backed away from Israel. So here's the idea, is that with 
the New Testament church being the new temple, he's saying that he's praying that all the fullness of God, it would, it would fill us. Just as the glory would have filled the temple, that the fullness of God would fill us together. I don't think this, again, I don't think this is an individual project. If you look, that's where it's helpful. You can't see it in the English. But that you there in 19b, that you may be filled, as good old Americans, we like to make that individual really quick, first person singular. But it's actually second person plural in the Greek. You have to see that, that you all may be filled with God's fullness. So together, as we're in community, God fills us with his fullness, just as he would have filled the temple with his glory. It's a, it's a paradox, but it's not a contradiction. That we would be filled up to the fullness of God. That together we would experience what God has for us in community. So maybe just to conclude, I believe that Paul is still praying here for something that can happen. Although not perfectly, but it can happen realistically in the here and now. I don't think he switches his prayer request to something that like, we really can't attain until heaven. I think he's saying, as you're a part of Christ's body, um, this, this is something that can be attained to experience the fullness of God, even in the hearing now. So, as perhaps a fitting doxology this morning, look at verse 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Quick little note on that. I think we could skip over all of verse 20 grammatically and you'd still have verse 22, 21 and get the point that Paul is saying. But look at all that he just pours on in verse 20. Now to him who's able, able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, he just, just keeps building on to this phrase. And he says, okay, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All of our effort, all of our understanding, all of our comprehension, it's to go back in glory to God. So let me summarize by saying this. Because of God's abundant, mercy, abundant and rich mercy, we need His strength for Christ to abide in our inner being through faith so that we might comprehend and know His love for us which produces the fullness of God's presence amongst His people, the church. That's a mouthful. But He's praying for that. He's praying for that to expand. All of this is to bring Him glory who by His Spirit is doing the strengthening, the working, the filling, the dwelling, and the building. So maybe I'll just read that as our benediction this morning one more time. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We're dismissed.